Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with N.K. Jemison, author of The Inheritance Trilogy, published by Orbit Books. Stay tuned for the interview. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Nora Jemison, author of the Inheritance Trilogy, which includes the novels The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, The Broken Kingdoms, and The Kingdom of Gods. In The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, gods dwell among mortals, and one powerful corrupt family rules the earth. Three extraordinary people may be the key to humanity's salvation. Nora, welcome to the podcast. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Hi. Sure. Well, I, I wondered if, as we get uh, started, I wondered if you could read like the first three or four paragraphs of the first chapter of the Kingdom of Gods. Sure, that's no trouble. I happen to have it handy. Um, okay, I will skip over the the little um, prologue, and I'll skip the the chapter header, which uh, is a. A little bit of a nursery rhyme that I made up um, based on the character, but let's go ahead and get started. (coughs) Excuse me. There will be no tricks in this tale. I tell you this so that you can relax. You'll listen more closely if you aren't flinching every other instant, waiting for the pratfall. You will not reach the end and suddenly learn I have been talking to my other soul or making a lullaby of my life for someone's unborn brat. I find such things disingenuous, so I will simply tell the tale as I lived it. But wait, that's not a real beginning. Time is an irritation, but it provides structure. Should I tell this in the mortal fashion? All right, then. Linear. Slow. You require context. Beginnings. They are not always what they seem. Nature is cycles, patterns, repetition. But of what we believe, of the beginning I understand... There was once only Maelstrom, the unknowable. Over a span of uncountable aeons, as none of us were yet here to count, it churned forth endless substances and concepts and creatures. Some of those must have been glorious, because even today the Maelstrom spins forth new life with regular randomness, and many of those creations were indeed beautiful and wondrous. But most of them last only an eye blink or two before the maelstrom rips them apart again, or they die of instant old age, or they collapse in on themselves and become tiny maelstroms in turn. These are absorbed back into the greater cacophony. But one day the maelstrom made something that did not die. Indeed, this thing was remarkably like itself, wild, churning, eternal, ever-changing. Yet this new thing was ordered enough to think and feel and dedicate itself to its own survival— in token of which the first thing it did was get the hells away from the maelstrom. Uh, Want me to stop about there? That sounds good. Well, if if the listeners haven't heard about the Inheritance Trilogy before, can you briefly describe the trilogy and what readers can expect? Oh, sure. Um, Well, essentially it's set in a universe with a created pantheon and created cosmogony, um, I think is the proper word. Um. <clears throat> excuse me, which you actually heard a little bit of the description of. Um, in essence, uh, the the story is narrated by um, 
a godling, which is something like the third order of divine beings in this universe. Um, and that godling, C.A., is explaining how everything came to be. Um, and if I continued reading the whole thing, you would have heard about how the Maelstrom created the three main gods, um, a god of chaos, which was the first one that popped out and got the hells away, um, a god of order, uh, and a goddess of balance. Um, however, they, they lived together, they did all kinds of cool things, like created the universe, but then um, they had a bit of a tiff, and uh, bad th <laughs> things happened, um, the, the end of the world as we know it, um, and so on. Um, and as a result of that, by the time of the first book of the series, um, one of the gods has been murdered. Uh, another god has been enslaved, uh, that is, turned into a human form and given to a human family to um, endure uh, several thousand years of horrible imprisonment and treatment like a lower class of being. Um, and uh, the third god is ascendant and uh, retains all of its power and is kind of like the, the, the one true god because it killed all the rest. Um, and so the story follows that human family, uh, or not closely, but uh, it, it starts out by following that human family, which has the power of enslaved gods at its beck and call, and it uses them to take over the world and reshape the world in its own image. Um, so each book of the trilogy is from the POV of a character kind of dealing with the, the aftermath of all this. Great. That, that, um, and I should add that, that for listeners that all three of the books are available in bookstores now. So um, mm -hmm. you should definitely yep. check them out. Um, I'm curious, what, what was the, um, the, path to <clears throat> the path to publication like for you? Did you always grow up writing? And, and if you can recall, what was the impetus for writing your kind of first novel-length manuscript? And from there, what was the path to publication for you actually having your first novel published? Hmm. Um, I am one of those people that's always been a writer, like literally for as long as I can remember. Um, I, I would say I was probably writing stories when I was maybe seven or eight and really gave it an earnest effort when I was nine or ten. Um, you know, when I was seven or eight, I would write, you know, little silly things and tie them together uh, on cardboard and construction paper with some yarn and call that my published book. Um, <laughs> but uh, but then, then I decided to try something a little different. And um, so throughout my teenage years, I wrote uh, novel-length stuff, actually. I, I, it took me a long time to write short stories. Um, I, I started out writing novel-length stuff, um, and it was the other way around for me from what I think a, a lot of writers do. Um, and kind of, uh, I never really intended to publish it. I always just sort of did it for fun and as a hobby for a long time. But then when I hit about 30 years old, it's, I decided, okay, let's see what we can do with this and, and maybe try and make a, a pro career of it. And, uh, at that point started researching and trying to figure out how do you get published, um, submitted my first novel around that time to a publisher, which got rejected, took a while. Um, and um, I also went to the Viable Paradise uh, writing workshop, which is a one-week workshop out on uh, uh, Martha's Vineyard, which I highly recommend. Um, and that workshop, even though it's only a one-weeker, I couldn't really afford a, a six-weeker like a Clarion or... Um, 
there, there's other six week right. long workshops mm-hmm. that I can't remember the name of. But um, so I could only afford to take a week off of work, but uh, I did that one week and it was actually fantastic. Um, it was a week spent with a bunch of published authors and uh, professional editors like uh, Patrick and Teresa Nielsen Hayden, Stephen Gould. Um, Oh, good grief, it's horrifying that I'm drawing a blank on the other names. But um, anyway, they, they spent that week kind of beating into my head the idea that, you know, persistence is really the key to to getting published. Um, if you are good enough, you know, you will eventually get published. It's just a matter of whether you give up before that moment comes. Um <clears throat> And uh, so I joined a writer's group in Boston right out after that, the Boston area writers, uh, science fiction writers. Um, And I think we eventually changed our name to Brawlers because we thought BASF was boring. (laughs) Um, And um, so I was with them for many years and uh, they kind of taught me how to embrace rejection um, we would have rejection parties whenever we hit like the 50 mark or the 100 mark or something like that. <laughs> um, you know, 100, 100 rejections was a beer party. Um, you know, 150 rejections was, you know, full on margarita blast. Um, so anyway. <laughs> um, and so, so I'm curious if some of the people who were in that group with you are now published as well. Yes, actually. Um, Sandra McDonald, uh, I think, was the first one to kind of break out from our group. Uh, she published a trio of military science fiction romance novels through Tor. Um, most recently, Jennifer Pelland uh, just published uh, her first novel, uh, Machine, through uh, – I draw a blank on the publisher. Right. That's horrible. Um, but, yes, yeah, so so that's several great. other folks from the group have done well. And, in fact, most of the members of the group had published uh, – oh, and uh, Margaret Ronald has also published several novels, and I also forget that publisher. That, that's um, but most of us have published short stories, too. Great. Well, I wanted to go back for a moment when you when you were talking about, you know, your, your early fiction efforts starting, you know, I think you said when you were seven or eight. Um, mm-hmm. Were you immediately at that time and into your teenage years, were you writing – uh, science fiction and fantasy, were you always drawn to to, to that uh, milieu or genre? I would say, yeah. I mean, it, it was children's, it was fairy tales, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was apocalyptic fairy tales and um, science fiction-tinged fairy tales. Uh, I think my, my, first, uh, my first story was uh, this sort of vaguely Aesop-like fable in which um, I was trying to explain how animals lost the power of speech. And it was because they used to be walking, talking, sentient, speaking beings, um, but then they couldn't get along with each other and they nuked each other into, and they mutated into creatures that couldn't talk anymore. Um, and so that's why we should not use nuclear weapons on each other. The end. <laughs> um, so, so that was kind of my first effort. <laughs> um, I think it was inspired partly by Aesop and partly by Damnation Alley, uh, the Jan Michael Vincent movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, um, yes. I, I'm I'm yes. curious. I mean, because um, I'm curious because you you are an African American female writer of of fantasy and science fiction. I wonder if we can talk about that for a moment. I, I would think that you know, as you were growing up, that there was not uh, a lot of models for um, uh, writers of color 
in in genre fiction. I mean, for many years, there was Octavia Butler, Samuel Delaney, Stephen Barnes, and Charles Saunders. <laughs> that that's changing now slowly. I'm I'm wondering were you were you aware of that? You know, um, at a younger age, or did he, did it factor into to you know your interest in in genre fiction? It didn't affect me at first, um, mostly because I was young enough that um, for quite a while I didn't really have as clear a grasp of how racism worked. Um, you know, I was growing up in, in mostly in Alabama and in Brooklyn of, of the 1980s. And so to me, racism was um, overt, blatant, in-your-face stuff. Um, and it just never occurred to me to notice that I, I never saw anybody that looked like me in science fiction and fantasy. Not writers, not readers. Uh, I'm sorry, not, not characters. Um, most of the, the kids that I knew were also kids of color. Most of the kids that I knew that read science fiction and fantasy, um, heck, everybody I knew was, was somebody brown who loved this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but very few of us were really kind of seeing ourselves represented. And it was only it was really only in high school that I started to really feel that. Um, and around the time that I started to actually disengage with the genre because of that, because I started to feel like, well, wait a minute, um, you know, I love this stuff. I'm giving, you know, so much time and energy to it and it's not giving me anything back. Maybe I should, you know, try other genres. Maybe I should not be reading this. Maybe it's not for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Around that time, I started to find things that actually I could connect to. Um, I discovered Octavia Butler kind of like midway through the 80s. Um, right. And so by that point, I had been writing for several years, but uh, that was right around the time, and I desperately needed to have found her right around that time. Um, I didn't realize I had found her at first because her first novel, um, I don't know if uh, you knew about this or not, but her first novel had been whitewashed on the cover. So uh, Dawn, the first book of the, not her first novel, but her first few novels, but uh, this was uh, her first novel of hers that I had discovered was Dawn, uh, the first book of the Xenogenesis slash Lilith's Brood trilogy, Mm -hmm. um, which depicted two white women on the cover when in fact one of them was black. Um, And it was really only as I started reading that story and realized about maybe halfway through the story or maybe a quarter of the way in that, wait a minute, something's not right here. Um, And also, wait a minute, hey, I think this author's black, but then there was no author picture um, and there was no mention of it in her author bio. They had uh, done a a fantastic job of kind of hiding that aspect. Um, That's when I started to finally realize it. Um, And also around that time, a friend of mine introduced me to uh, ElfQuest, uh, which was uh, by Wendy Peeney, a uh, fantastic independent comic book um, that eventually started to have black elves in it, um, or you know, Indian-looking elves or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I began to realize, wait a minute, you know, fantasy does this too. This is not just a science fiction issue. This is a fantasy issue too. Why is it that, um, you know, we never see people that look sort of at least slightly brown um, in Dungeons and Dragons in uh, the epic fantasy? Well, we do. We see them being killed, um, but that's a right. whole other issue. Um, and and, and you know. do you do you do you feel now that that um, you know, given that you're you're you know now uh, professionally published and obviously a, a, a member of the 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 um, community. Do you feel like it's changing more, or do you feel like there's kind of a catch twenty two that 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 readers of color eventually lose interest because they're picking up another you know quasi medieval fantasy featuring mostly white or Caucasian characters? Um, 
I still see a large number of people of color people of color reading science fiction and fantasy. Um, they all do eventually reach this point of of disillusionment, and the the big question is whether they find um, those last little bits of anchors that might help to hold them into the genre long enough for them to discover. Um, the Octavia Butlers uh, and the the other things that will actually show them that yeah we actually exist in the future and we actually existed in the past too, um, you know things like that. So right. um, that that is the big question and uh, it's becoming easier for people to see those connections these days. But there there are still plenty of things not just the the benign neglect of uh, not seeing people but there's also a good bit of overt racism in the field, and um, you know we don't we don't see it um, left alone or ignored as much these days. People are more willing to challenge it when they see it. Right. Um, but even so, if if a new person is coming into the genre and the first thing they encounter, um, you know, I, I used to say this a few years ago. I think they've gotten rid of it since. But if the first thing they encountered was something like the Asimov's Forum, um, that could be a traumatic experience. I don't know if you've uh, if you read the Asimov's forum before a couple of years ago, and I think they finally uh, changed it and started moderating it. But for a while, um, I, I guess I of, guess I didn't. I mean, was, 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 it, was yeah. it disturbing? Yeah, you could you could go in there, and any conversation about political issues would um, fairly quickly um, bring out some some. Some some eyebrow raisers, right? I'll just right. Say. Uh, and and, yeah. and I I think I'm I'm vaguely aware of that, but but um, uh, I, I wonder. I mean, I, I've thought this before. Um, you know, and and I mean, I know that there are different tastes for for different people, but uh, but I know that that you know there's a prevalence of of you know military science fiction, not all, but some of that which appeals to. A, a very conservative audience, and and it was always kind of a head scratcher for me that that you are, um, and I say you as a, as a global that 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 people are ostensibly reading a genre of literature that that uh, would ostensibly, or you would think that it would be a, a, a style of literature that's open to uh, diversity and, and different points of view, and yet there was still this this you know sometimes a very heavy strain of conservative uh you know people reading it and and enjoying it i don't know i've always felt that was kind of a dichotomy it, it was always kind of confusing to me well uh, a couple of things um in response to your statement um first off military science fiction doesn't have to be conservative um it tends to be because the biggest names in it have have very vocally claimed that identity. But um, I did mention Sandra McDonald. Um, sure, you sure. know it's military science fiction. She has been in the military. She's speaking from a place of experience. Um, and her particular novel, I, I loved, and I am generally not a fan of military SF. But uh, so there's a good bit of stuff out there that defies the uh, stereotype. But sure, I mean, um, and, and, and I didn't, I didn't, you know, want to per perpetuate the stereotype because I agree. Mm -hmm. I think. There, I think there's, you know, uh, I think it's not all, um, you know, conservative. I just want to make that point. Right, right. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I yeah. just wanted to make that too. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, to the latter part of what you're saying, though, I mean, science fiction has never truly done a good job of predicting the future. Um, science fiction does a great job of reflecting the issues of its present, of, of the time that it's written in. Um, and, you know, yeah, it, it, you know, tosses in a few jetpacks and flying cars, 
I'm, I'm, I'm being really facetious here. Um, but in general, you don't usually see science fiction that, that truly engages with um, the trends of our world, the way that our world is actually built. Um, and it, in a lot of cases, reflects the, the um, prejudices and inexperiences of, of its writers. Um, <clears throat> I made this point uh, in an essay that I posted on my website not too long ago about how when I was a kid, um, one of the you know sort of father-daughter bonding experiences I would do with my dad was I would watch uh, original series Star Trek, mm-hmm. um, two in the morning uh, every summer, uh, you know, in Channel Eleven in Brooklyn, and um, <clears throat> so I would watch uh, original series Star Trek, and Dad would be like, you know, I, I ate this stuff up when I was a kid. And, you know, but then we were watching it critically with me as a teenager and him, you know, just kind of very gently pointing out, did you notice that Uhura is nothing but the secretary? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Did you notice that, um, you know, she's apparently from this generic pan-Africa. She's not from any particular place. Did you notice that Sulu is from generic pan-Asia? He's not from any particular place. And yet Kirk and McCoy are from actual countries. Um, you know, so, so he would point out these little things and I would be like, Hey, wait a minute. That's true. And it occurred to me, you know, yes, back in the day, Star Trek was groundbreaking for its time, but as a true predictor of the, the way that the world really is, um, you know, by the year 500, apparently women and, and people of color will be in the severe minority on the planet to judge by the representation on the, uh, the enterprise. And, and they won't get to do much more than drive the ship and answer the phones. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that is a little concerning, or it was a little concerning to me when I was growing up. Sure. But that's because it wasn't truly trying to predict the future. It was reflecting the 1960s when it was created. Right, right. Well, well continuing with this discussion for just uh, uh, a little bit more, do you think there's anything intentional that the science fiction and fantasy community could do regarding embracing uh, diverse audiences? And, and I'm thinking of things like, you know, uh, doing, you know, some type of book event or reading or book signing with, with you know, inner city uh, teenagers or kids. Inner city? Um, not or di- really. Or, or um, diverse. I mean, diverse. I mean, if... I, I think the, the most useful thing that science fiction and fantasy can do is actually be diverse itself. Um, you know, writers need to make sure that they are actually trying to reflect the future and not just their own limited presence. Um, you know, we need to see people of color doing something more than answering the damn phone. Um, we need to see people of color represented in a realistic, um, representation. You know, if you're, if you're doing the friends treatment of uh, New York City, um, where, you know, you've got this bizarre New York that seems to be all white and middle class and up or, or upper class, right. um, that, that's, that's not normal. That's not the way it really should be. So, you know, when you're writing a future in which uh, humanity has formed a single culture, well, look at the fact that humanity is currently 80% you know, non-white. Um, maybe your your cast of your spaceship should be eighty percent non-white. Um, you know, things like that have right. a lot more power to draw in readers that are uh, from a variety of backgrounds. If you have a variety of backgrounds in your story, if your story isn't reflecting just simply the perspectives of uh, a very narrow demographic of people, I think right. that's infinitely more useful than than trying to do signings with. Um, any kind of perceived subset of uh, uh, what people like us are like. Right. 
what are you working on now? What would be your next novel? Uh, well, actually, today I am working on um, a a. I don't want to name it yet because my names kind of suck. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I started work on a new um, fantasy trilogy that uh, will be set in. Well, I don't know yet that it's going to be a trilogy. It kind of feels like a trilogy. But um, I started work on a new fantasy novel. Um, that will be set in another secondary world, one that is uh, extremely seismically active um, and with magic sy- a magic st- system that is um, very much seismic-based. Um, and in fact, uh, next week I'm going to Hawaii to try and do some research and uh, learn a little bit more about volcanoes so that I can write from you know, a place of actual knowledge because there are not many volcanoes in New York. Wow. That's a great <laughs> trip. Yeah, well, um, I'm hoping I can actually make it useful because I can't afford to stay for very long, but uh, right. we'll see what I get out of it. Great. Well, what is your writing process like? Do you outline extensively before writing or do you write more organically? Um, I have learned to outline over time because otherwise then I just kind of write in random directions and end up erasing a lot more. <laughs> um but uh, my outlines are so loose and I veer away from them whenever a new idea hits me. Um, so the outline is really more of a very, very vague um, sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my outline, I, I outline before I write each novel. So I have a general direction of where I want to go. Um, and then I go somewhere slightly to the left or right of that. Great. Well, what tips or advice would you offer for aspiring writers? Mm-hmm. That same thing that I was told at uh, Viable Paradise uh, persist. It is it it is important to be a good writer, but it is also um, equally important to be someone who uh, believes in him or herself and continues to try and push to try and get uh, to to break in to get that foot in the door. Um, and does the things, you know, professionally speaking, that are necessary to help get that foot through the door. Um, go to conventions, talk to people, um, try to publish short stories as well as novels. Um, you know, that will help to get your name out there. Um, but ultimately, the bottom line is you cannot let rejection or you cannot let um, any sort of negativity stop you. Anything that that suggests that, you know, it's not right for you to be here or it's not right for you to keep doing this um, – Unfortunately, you have to kind of just kind of ignore that and keep doing it. Um, it helps if you have friends that will take you out for a drink when you have 150 rejections. <laughs> Good advice. Well, where, yes. can, where can people find more about you online? Where can people find you? Um, my blog is NK Jemison. That's N-K-J-E-M-I-S-I-N dot com. Uh, so, and my blog has, uh, samples of my novels or samples of my published novels, sorry. Um, uh, my links to where my short fiction, if it's on the web or is, uh, freely available can be found. Um, and, um, uh, just me blathering on about lots of things. Um, so that's the easiest place. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Nora Jemison, author of the Inheritance Trilogy. The books are available in bookstores now, are available for download as ebooks. And Nora, thanks for doing the interview. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. 
If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.